Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah's going to go ahead and go first. What are you telling us about? I'm going first, and I'm talking about creativity. Where does it go? Where does it go? It's kind of an abstract topic, so bear with me. (laughs) So I looked at a a few different places for definitions of creativity, and the dictionary definition was undesirable. I didn't like it. It was kind of boring. Dictionary said that creativity is the use of the imagination or original ideas, especially in the production of an artistic work. All right, fine, that's okay. But when I was looking other places to get a real definition of creativity and kind of thinking about it myself, I found that creativity was generally defined as an ability to take unrelated thoughts and ideas and make them reality. It seemed that the definitions of creativity have a lot more to do with how an idea that didn't exist before comes into existence and maybe in that medium or maybe in that combination, maybe it was an idea that existed before and is combined into something else. I I find that's an okay definition. That gets to the gist of it. So where does creativity come from, just so we're all on the same page of this? There are an estimated 86 billion neurons in the human brain, and our desire for novelty has made us uh, animals that innovate and create. We're pretty unique in the animal kingdom. Of course, everybody knows that cats and elephants paint because of the books (laughs) about it. (laughs) I love those videos of elephants painting. I know, it's so great. But we are, you know, our, our adaptation to the universe is we don't have... We don't have fur. We don't have, we can't run very fast. And our adaptation is pretty much that we innovate and create the things that we need. So our sensing neurons in our brain connect to acting neurons and connect in all kinds of, in all kinds of ways. And they form these tangled networks that produce our random creative thoughts and are always looking for patterns and new connections to make. So your brain is always trying to create new connections between things to learn about the world, no matter what age you are. No one one area is really responsible in our brain and is thought responsible for creativity, but many interacting processes work together, like I said, to kind of bend reality and free associate different ideas and it's more about the relationship between both sides of the brain so it's always been said that people on the right side of the brain are more creative yeah they're more artsy and left side are more analytical is my understanding of what's been taught yeah that's not really true good because it never made a lot of sense to me (laughs) creative people were found to have thicker corpus callosums That's the part of the brain that connects the right to the left, and it's kind of the communication superhighway between the two. So it seems like these people have a lot of, a lot more connections between neurons and a lot more connection between the two sides of the brain. So there were two scientists, Charles Lim and Alan Broad, uh, they're neuroscientists, who performed brain imagery scans on jazz musicians. This was actually really interesting. They found that when the musicians made spontaneous compositions, as jazz musicians do, some of the higher brain functions in the prefrontal cortex were suppressed, which is interesting. 
This part of the brain is associated with conscious control as well as self-monitoring. So people have said this is kind of like the inner critic, and the inner critic part of the brain was silenced while these people were making a um, spontaneous composition. Lemon brought also report that the limbic centers of the brain are unregulated during creative improvisation, suggesting that they had heightened emotion during creative pursuits, which is kind of cool. So when do we start being creative? And that's it's pretty much when we're babies. Babies are known to be creative. As soon as they can talk, they start making noises to see what happens. And toddlers especially show, as I'm sure Emily can attest, the ability to problem solve pretty creatively and divergently think about problems. Yeah, my two-and-a-half-year-old is pretty, pretty creative. <laughs> There's a blue robot that she made up that... Uh, sometimes breaks through the walls. <laughs> There's no actually no blue robot. <laughs> or if there is, she's the only one that sees right. it. Right. Maybe, maybe he does exist. They play with anything, and experimentation is the key. Babies are learning about the world. They're trying to form those connections. They're experimenting. They're trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, how to be human. And that is why they're highly creative. They're just... people in training pretty much and their brains are just incredibly active and and they know that when they cry their parents will give them stuff and as soon as they figure that link out they will try all the cries that they can think of to see what happens so with kids are amazingly creative why do so many adults say they aren't creative because adults don't define creativity very broadly Exactly. So where does it go, though? So many people have blamed the current educational practice of teaching to the test. I found this all over the place as a culprit in the loss of creativity. Maybe children learn to save face as soon as they kind of get old enough to understand that what other people think besides their mom and their dad is important. They start to understand the societal pressure to fit in and get along and gain a fear of asking stupid questions. So they stop doing the why, why, why uh, when they were younger. They learn the learning of social norms and acceptable behaviors kind of take over. The behaviors that are cooperative and to a certain degree the obedience of rules in school is rewarded in a school setting for very good reason. You don't want crazy monkeys running around when you're trying to teach. And this further makes it less likely that kids will remain unconventional and experimental in their ideas and associations. Divergent thinking falls to the wayside, especially if children are not encouraged to freely play as part of their school lives and instead are funneled through years of just taking tests. Some of this is necessary, obviously. We need to learn how to get along with other people. Uh, people are pack animals. We have to learn how to get along with other people and not be feral people living in the woods, unless that's your thing. You do you. I don't care. However, our brains, our socialization, and our desire not to be left out in the cold from the pack works against us as we get older. It's just a fact of life that our brains are you know, so many hundreds of thousands of years old, and we didn't want to be left out in the wild, in the cold without our people. So we have learned to be extremely obsessed with other what other people think, and there's good reasons for that, and there's bad reasons, and we've kind of over-adapted for that. 
So, however, there has been evidence that creativity among school children is declining, which is very sad. I can't really say her name right. Kyung Hee Kim, uh, she's a PhD. She's an educational psychologist at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, has actually spent a decade studying creativity scores of 300,000 American uh, kindergarten through 12 students. She has found that creative creativity scores have significantly decreased since 1990. And that creativity scores for kindergartners, which they should actually be the highest scoring, they generally are, through, through third graders, decreased the most. Oh. Yeah, and those from the fourth through sixth grades decreased by the largest amount, which is kind of sad. It is often on the top of the list of surveys answered by CEOs and other higher-ups and companies. One of the most important traits for employability is creativity, yet it seems like it is not rewarded while people are growing up and in school and even in the workplace. I don't know many places that creativity is rewarded. I think a lot of it depends on the size of the the place you're working in. Because a very small business, I could see creativity having real value. If it's Absolutely. Like two or three people. Exactly. And you figure out a new way to do something. But, but like working in a cube farm, I can't mm -mm. think of a reason. Yeah. It's like the opposite. Exactly. Especially because you have so little control over things. Right. A lot of the time. And so little control over processes. Mm-hmm. So most people may know... Um, the term starving artist, and I think this whole trope kind of plays against everyone. And they understand that it means that a person is working artist but not able to make ends meet. They're starving, they can't pay their bills, but they're creative. And at some point, this is because uh, people, when their kids are expected to put away childish thing and be more focused on school in order, in order to get a job and be successful in life and do the things that need to be done and not waste your time on silly things because you're just going to be a starving artist and starve to death. So you need to get a job and work in a cube farm, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> there is also the trope of the artist as messy, crazy, mad, or disturbed in some way, despite or maybe because of their creative genius. I saw this come up constantly when I was uh, looking up creativity and kind of watching videos about where does creativity go? Why are we creative? What, why, aren't we, why do so many people think they're not creative when they actually are? Um, so it's been, and this is kind of an interesting diversion of the talk, topic that I found really, really substantial amount of evidence on. It's been found that highly creative people, especially writers, tend to suffer from mental illnesses disproportionately, which is, I, I always thought it was a trope. It's actually, there's quite a lot of evidence for it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yay! <laughs> Studies linking creativity and mental illness, as I said, are numerous. It's been suggested that creativity and madness might be a spectrum by a few different people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're either, you know, it's a spectrum. <laughs> oh, man. 
are you creative or are you crazy? Who knows? Anyway, as I mentioned before, the, during the creative process um, in jazz musicians on brain imaging, the inner critic may be silenced. Maybe this is where our tenuous line between mental illness and creativity is. I don't know. There's not really a whole lot of explanation for this. They just know that there's a huge link. We really don't know, but there's so many in them. There's a recent study in Sweden that found that people with psychoses tend to have relatives that score really high on creativity tests as well. So maybe their uh, relatives aren't, don't have the psychoses themselves, but they tend to score really high on creativity tests. So this kind of lends the lends a credence to the person that said that um, maybe creativity and madness is a spectrum. I don't know about Oh, that. I was laughing because that sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> I was not laughing because that was ridiculous. I was laughing because that's... I know. So, so it, apt. I, I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> Indeed, there's a gene that, that they've actually found that they think is more prevalent in families of really creative people. It's the glucomutarotase gene, and by all means, if I said that wrong, I'm sorry. Um, the families that scored high when they found this on the musical aptitude and other creativity tests were found to have higher brain plasticity. So neuroplasticity is the ability for the brain to you know, kind of roll with the changes and form and organize new connections between the neurons. So people with this gene tended to be faster and have a higher ability to form new connections, which is a huge mark of creativity that they've found. So you can form new connections. You can maybe link things unrelated to each other. Think of nonsensical, outlandish things. So what would be the evolutionary advantage for illnesses like depression, anxiety, bipolar, and the link to creativity? Why, why is this a thing? Why have we talked about this for years and finally have studies that actually show this? So in a YouTube video from Gresham College, which I found interesting, it was a little dry, but worth watching, it was suggested that neurotic people tend to be more creative and tend to think of novel solutions to ideas. So even though they're ruminating and ruminating and ruminating about things like that one time you waved at someone that you didn't, you thought you knew but didn't and felt embarrassed for six years afterwards, <laughs> um, neurotic people tend to be more creative. So in your brain, you're making all these connections that don't really exist, but at the same time, if you think about it, that's really creative. Maybe they didn't wave at you. It's, it's okay. But you're thinking of all these reasons why you should be super embarrassed, which is your brain just being, trying to form connections and trying to solve some problems. And I wanted to have a personal note from me because this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and something I wanted to make clear that people with mental illness function and are creative in spite of their illness not because of it. There's been quite a few people that have said this, and I wholeheartedly agree with it. Uh, there's been the romanticizing of creativity and mental illness and has left many people from seeking effective treatment because of this. They're worried that they're creative only because of their mental illness, and so they don't seek effective treatment, and that can end up in dire consequences for those poor people. 
And I'd like to just think of the things that people with these illnesses could have accomplished if they had actually sought treatment, hadn't been so identifying with their mental illness and worried that it would take their creativity away without having to live a torture life of mental illness. There's a really, really great book called by Dr. Eric Meisel called The Van Gogh Blues. It's, it's a good book. Um, it's about depression and creativity, and I definitely suggest it for anyone who is creative, um, lives a creative life, and is struggling with depression. It's actually one of my favorite books, and he is um, a creativity coach and a therapist, and he talks pretty extensively about creativity and depression um, and the links between the two and getting people to kind of move past and maybe use their depression or their anxiety issues um, as a stepping stone to be more creative and kind of move past it. So we talked about where creativity goes and my opinion is that everybody is creative. Just because you're not writing a novel, painting a picture, sculpting something, like doing something people have accepted as a tangible idea of creativity, you probably do something that is creative. Maybe you make your bed creatively. Maybe you dress creatively. Maybe you wear socks like one of my psychiatrists used to do. His socks were always mismatched on purpose. You'd never notice it unless he bent his knee. You use your brain to solve problems all day. That is just the nature of being a human animal. And that is your brain taking something that didn't exist and making it real. It's true. So also of note, our brains think thousands of thoughts per day. So some of them are probably outlandish and nonsensical. Maybe people who seem to be more creative just entertain and act on those thoughts. So my advice is to play more, explore outlandishness, be silly, just play. Don't just sit in your cube farm all day. I don't think creativity went away. I think it's just hiding. The end. <laughs> That was really interesting. Thank you. Uh-huh. Lots to think about with what I would like to encourage in my own child. Awesome. Because I don't want her to lose her little blue ro- or her giant blue robot. No thoughts. I think that's fun. Yeah. My topic is it's like what people would consider the left brain side of what you're talking about. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. Where does stock value go? Yay! And market value. Yes, and I want to know. In stock market index value. Yes. Where does where do those things go? Because and it, this is kind of timely because the Dow Jones Industrial Average is tanking, and there's discussions of recession and all sorts of things. And I don't know how many people grew up listening to NPR being driven around by their parents, but it was very common to have, say, Lakshmi Singh have a brief news break where they discussed the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and Dow, and they were up by X number of points or down by X number of points due to different reasons. Where does that go? What is it? Where does it go? So what's a stock? We're going to start real small and get real big. I love that. What's a stock? It's the capital raised by a business or corporation through the issue and subscription of shares. So a stock would be like a company like, let's uh, use a very recognizable company. No, let's, let's use a made-up company. 
Okay. Just because I want to be clear, none of what I'm about to say is advice. How about Blue Robot? Blue Robot, yeah. <laughs> so Blue Robot would be the company that has stock. Shares would be the single smallest denomination of a company's stock. So Blue Robot, let's say it trades at $7 a share right now. So a $7 share is the single smallest denomination of a company's stock. How are initial stock share values determined? A lot of very complicated math done by a bank. Okay, I've always been curious. Like, do they just make it up? They're like, oh, you know, I think I want my shares to be a nickel and a half per share. To some extent, yes. Okay. <laughs> a lot of this is a lot of stock market behavior and share valuation involves emotion and thoughts and feelings and panic and confidence and a lot of emotional intangibles. How dare you suggest that? I, I am stating it as a fact. <laughs> <laughs> Fight me. <laughs> so at an initial public offering for a stock, an investment bank will calculate the initial market capitalization, which is also often called a market cap. A market capitalization is the decided price of a share multiplied by the number of shares available, a.k.a. the value of the company. Okay. The public offering value of the company. They decide, the investment bank decides how many stocks to offer, determines the price, determines the value of the company, and then the initial public offering is touted for a long time, and then it, the shares are placed for sale on a stock exchange. After the initial public offering, there are a lot of places that said like supply and demand were what determined a stock price, and to some extent, that's true. Mm. So how many shares can be supplied to you at a price you want to pay for it? Okay. So that is a very broad way of looking at stocks that doesn't go into a lot of the why. After the IPO also, stock value may go up or down, and it's a lot of it's based on sentiment. Like, so there were, I found a, a page that had four, the four E's of stock value. Earnings, they better grow up or, and this, this was the wording in the article, stock shareholders will punish the company by selling at a lower price. So it's a punishment to reduce stock price if a company doesn't earn the way they were expected to. They could even make money, like profit, more profit than the last quarter, but if it wasn't the expected bump in profit, it is still something that is seen as a failure. Uh, what's the economy doing? So if, an or if the economy, and there's, there are a lot of stock exchanges in the world, and there are a lot of stocks, and there are a lot of shares. A lot of what I'm going to be talking about is U.S.-centric, but a lot of these functions hold true internationally. Okay. How's the economy doing? In the country where the stock exchange is, or elsewhere. You know, the, the Russian ruble borderline collapsed around, what was it, 2015, 2014? Somewhere uh, in there. It sounds about right. 2014 sounds about right. There was a massive currency devaluation of the ruble prior to the 2016 presidential mm -hmm. election, quite a bit prior. 
And that affected international economies. Chinese, Chinese currency values, the yuan. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, but that affects international markets. So what are economies doing? And is this stock something that you would want to buy more of when an economy is doing poorly or buy less of when an economy is doing poorly? Mm -hmm. So gold, often the price goes up when other economic factors are not as profitable because people often, although not always, and there's more that goes into this, view gold as kind of a safe haven. Right. Because the assumption is gold will always have a specific, a, some monetary value. So that can control sentiment about the value of a stock or the share value. Emotion and expectation play a part. So how do people feel about the future of the company how do they feel about the sector itself? How do they feel about the market the stock trades on? Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about stock exchanges and sort of sentiments attached to those different exchanges toward the end, because I'm starting smaller with stock and shares and then mm -hmm. going bigger to exchanges. So this is, this is I, I wrote this because what does it have to do with the price of tea in China? Is a common saying, but that's, that's something that can actually impact <laughs> the value of your stock. When you buy or sell stocks or shares in a stock, in American English, stocks and shares in a stock are used interchangeably a lot of the time. That may not be the case in other English-speaking countries or other countries utilizing English. They may use British English. They may use other English standards. So when you buy or sell a stock, you do so via a broker or you can become a broker. Who do you buy and sell them from? You would think it's just from the company or from other shareholders. But, you would be wrong. Well, you'd be, you'd be one step removed. Yeah. You do buy them from the company. The company issues them. You do buy them from other shareholders. But in between, there are entities called market makers. And market makers literally make up the market. They are banks or brokerage companies that are registered as market makers, and different stock exchanges have different market makers registered. And they always have shares available to sell and always have a bid in to purchase shares. Always. That's a requirement of being a market maker. They set the prices for how much they are willing to buy a share for and how much they are willing to sell a share for. What this does is it increases liquidity. If a market maker has a bid in for 200 shares, they will buy 200 shares of Blue Robot for $6.50, and they will sell 200 shares of Blue Robot for $7. Hmm. You can always interact with Blue Robot buying and selling shares if you are willing to work within the price structure offered by the market makers. Right. So while they have, they do have some impact on the value of a stock, they will bring it up or down. A lot of it is based on things that I just discussed, emotion, expectation, earnings, the economy. Some of it is also, there have been some, uh, some market maker entities that have gotten in a lot of trouble for share price manipulation. So it's not just, there aren't, they aren't a, uh, an objective entity, I guess. Mm -hmm. This allows shares to be traded anytime the market is open. So it increases liquidity and it increases volatility because shares can be more readily traded. 
So share prices can move up or down a lot more if market makers are involved and because market makers are involved. So I had said market makers are ready to sell and ready to buy. They set what's called the bid versus the ask. The set of shares available for sale at X, Y, and Z prices are the ask. The offers to buy shares at A, B, and C prices are the bid. So a market maker is bidding for A, B, and C prices. They want to buy shares at those prices. Typically, it will be lower than what they are willing to sell for. Yeah, that's generally how it works. So market makers can make money. That's how they make money. (laughs) So that's their compensation for the risk they take financially for always being available to buy and sell shares. The stock's share price is not just the average of the bid and the ask, though. So the stock share price ends up being the monetary value that will sell at the highest number of shares at that moment or move the highest number of shares at that moment. Okay. So it does depend on all the bids available and all the asks available to some extent, but it will not necessarily be the bid amount or the ask amount unless the bid and ask spread is very tight. So again, this increases volatility because the share price is not even a number necessarily that people are looking to buy for or looking to sell for. Okay. And when you use a brokerage, say TD Ameritrade or E-Trade or Fidelity or Robinhood or I think Acorn also does investments. I don't remember. Maybe, yeah. They work with a market maker and they provide the share orders to the market maker for them to do the trading. Okay. I, I have actually seen, I, I can tell which market maker my brokerage firm utilizes because I have seen my number of shares I want to sell always attached to the same. Because you can see in what's called level two data what the market makers are willing to, what, what the ask is, what the bid is, how many shares are up on the bid, how many shares are up on the ask. So interesting. when stock values go down, that money just basically disappears. What you, are, what you are looking to buy and sell are the actual shares, and their monetary value is somewhat secondary. You will own a share, and its value could go up or down. And I'm specifically, ta- I, I should have started with this, I'm specifically talking about stocks and shares, I'm not talking about bonds or mutual funds or commodities or actually purchasing gold or oil prices. You can trade stocks in oil companies and stuff like that. So this is all very broad and not as in-depth as I could get, but I was worried this would get so dry that I would <laughs> I would put our listeners to sleep. So I wanted to keep it... I think it's interesting. ...sort of topical to what's happening in the news and what you hear on... NPR from, say, Lakshmi Singh uh, about... (laughs) Thanks, Lakshmi. Yes, thank you. About stock value. So it it literally just goes away. We (laughs) One of the taglines on this podcast is nothing just goes away. (laughs) (laughs) And we, I have found the thing. I've found the thing that does not go away or does just go away. The value is erased. Uh, A good example is the company Canopy Growth Core. In three days, they lost over a billion dollars in value. Holy canasta! For their what? For their market cap because of share value reduction, and that's gone. 
if it's built back up in terms of value based on bid and ask and what people are willing to sell for and what people are willing to buy for, it will be new value. It's not regaining old value because time is linear by and large and you can only go to the future. So, so we, we talked about that in one of our podcast episodes earlier about time being linear, if you want to listen to that one. It's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah did a good job explaining time. So it's gone. Bye. <laughs> so let's, Wow. It's just gone. Yeah. Wow. It is a, it's a precarious financial system that is very abstract, and it allows for people to participate both on a retail level and on a professional level, and it allows them to lose as well as win. I guess, I mean, I guess it's a little different from gambling, but I don't feel like it's a lot different from gambling, honestly. I was just going to say this, like, how is this different from gambling? And it just, it seems like make-believe money, too. It's like we're playing a game. Yeah, and it really, <laughs> like, when you when you start trading more, you really do start feeling like it's a game. Wow. It's strange. So let's talk about stock exchanges and stock indexes mm-hmm. or indices. So in the United States, there are several major stock exchanges. There's the New York Stock Exchange, which has around 2,400 listings. So it's 2,400 companies. Okay. NASDAQ, which is usually tech stocks. I think that's where Facebook and Apple and Google and Netflix live. 3,900-ish listings. And then there's the OTC market, which has around 10,000-plus stocks. All of these different... Stock exchanges have requirements for market cap, share, individual share value. They have filing requirements for financials that have to be done on a certain form, on time, done by certain people, say lawyers or banks or whatever. They allow for public and professional access to these companies, financially speaking. That's the point of the exchange is to exchange shares in stock. It also includes things like bond markets and commodities, et cetera. About 75% of the trades that are handled on a stock exchange nowadays, like when I think of, say, on the floor of a stock exchange, I think of men in blue blazers screaming at each other. <laughs> and it's not all men, to be clear. Uh, but <laughs> that's, the, you know, that's the thing that I see or saw on the news growing up. Right. And now around 75% of those trades are automated processes based on mathematical formulas and settings in computer software. People don't scream at each other anymore? I think they do still. Okay, good. But they scream at their computer a lot more. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so when when a company is delinquent in those requirements I just listed in terms of financials or share value or uh, making sure that they have the right paperwork. They may be removed from a stock exchange or they may be downgraded. Uh, The OTC markets have three different tiers of reporting requirements Mm -hmm. and the lowest tier is the pink stocks or whatever they're called and they, uh, they have like almost no reporting requirements. So that's like, that's straight up gambling. It's like, well, <laughs> right? we'll see. <laughs> and I own, I own shares in uh, certain pink sheet stocks. 
Because gambling is sometimes an enjoyable pastime. (laughs) You do you, yeah. And then as you go up further into two different OTC tiers, there are different reporting requirements and share value requirements. The NASDAQ, I think, has around a $4 a share minimum for value. Now, I didn't say Dow Jones Industrial Average in that, did I? Or S&P 500. You No, you didn't say either S&P or Dow Jones. Exactly. And I don't know that I knew this until maybe even like a year ago. Uh, Those aren't stock markets. They're just indicators of roughly the behavior of the stock market extrapolated from the behavior of a group of companies. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I think my confusion was that it was never really pointed out, say, in the NPR little blurbs about where it was going. And we didn't, I didn't learn about the stock market at school, in school, anywhere, including in my economy classes. I took multiple economy classes. <laughs> I sought out this information. Yeah, Lakshmi, you didn't tell us this. I don't know if her bosses told her to tell us this, though. Yeah, it's okay. We, we forgive you. <laughs> so the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is a an index owned by the Dow Jones company takes the value of 30 of large company stocks like Coca-Cola, et cetera, mm-hmm. and lets you know their cumulative value moment by moment. So their cumulative value of like, if you had one share of each, how much would your whole portfolio be worth? Right. So that's just 30 large stocks. That's not, I mean, I, I gave numbers of 10,000, 3,900, 2,400. That's not, I, I struggle with the, uh, the use of 30 stocks as an indicator of overall stock market behavior. That's just a personal struggle. There's the NASDAQ 100, which is 103 securities or 100 companies. And that is used referring to NASDAQ stocks and is weighted by their market cap. So it is a modified, it's not just adding up one share of each, it's, it's modified based on their comp, how much they have in the market in terms of value as well. The S&P 500 is 500 different companies and their market cap weighted as well, similar to the NASDAQ 500. And then there's the New York Stock Exchange composite, which is all the New York Stock Exchange stocks weighted by the number of shares they offer. So not necessarily their actual valuation, but their share numbers. So that gives you at least a little bit better idea of when their value or their number of points change, what that's actually talking about. Because with the Dow Jones, it's talking about a dollar value for a share. With NASDAQ 100, S&P 500, and New York Stock Exchange Composite, it's talking a little bit more about movement of value or movement of share numbers and behavior of companies. So it's a little less straightforward what it's telling you, but when it goes up, it means there's more money in the stock market. (laughs) And when it goes down, it means that some of the money went away. It just went away. Yeah. So that's where it goes. It goes away. It goes away. And that's why it goes away. It has a lot to do with automated processes Emotion, economic health, international interactions, and yeah, that's it. Huh. So you, me, and your daughter are going to take Blue Robot public. Okay. So we 
have decided to go public, which means that our company will be publicly traded. Does who like values the the how much per stock? So you, me, and Anna are um, the major shareholders of this stock of the publicly yeah. traded company. Do we decide to sell certain numbers of stock so that there's more stock available, or does do we just decide because of the valuation how many shares there should be? We would work with an investment bank mm -hmm. to see what the best option would be based on what our company does, where we want to be listed, and actually that's something that I forgot to talk about. So where we want to be listed in terms of what stock exchange. Okay. And then where we think the company is going and how much effort we want to put into pleasing stockholders. Right. So I had mentioned at the very beginning sort of sentiment about the stock exchange on which a stock is listed. And I mentioned on OTC, there are stocks that have to report almost nothing. There are increased reporting requirements. And then say in the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, there are very specific reporting requirements, very specific share values that are like lowest share value requirements. Okay. So if something is listed on the, the OTC markets, which means over the counter, it is the same as sort of the, uh, like medication. <laughs> okay, I wondered if that's what that meant. It, uh, if it's a pink sheet stock, <laughs> it's like over the counter. It's an over the counter stock. Yeah, it's like Tylenol. <laughs> it's the Tylenol of stocks. <laughs> I wonder how Tylenol stock is doing. Yeah, they're probably doing well with everyone thinking it, there's going to be a, a, a depression. Yeah, a recession and a re I'm sorry, there's a recession. Everybody's got I'm a still, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still in the creativity episode talking about depression. <laughs> Everyone's depressed and we all have headaches. So Tylenol stock has gone up. <laughs> <laughs> so the sentiment about, say, pink sheet stocks, like if we chose that as a way to go, it would save us the efforts of all the reporting requirements. But people aren't necessarily going to trust what we say. <laughs> right. Because we can just say stuff. And it can be really hard to chase down <laughs> fraudsters. It can, be, it can be really hard to do. Right. If, you know, so sentiment of, say, something listed on a New York stock exchange or something listed on a stock exchange in a country that is having economic instability, which can include the United States. It would be real interesting to sort of pull international sentiment about U.S. companies right now and thoughts on their valuations. And I guarantee there are people internationally who have those thoughts <laughs> and are making economic decisions because of them. Yes, of course. There are probably a lot of them in China right now. Yeah. Or uh, Brexit is a good example of that's going to have global impacts. Yes, it that's is. Like, what is that, Halloween or something? I think it's happening on Halloween. Oh, what a perfect day. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but I think it's around Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Boo, scary. So, yeah, stock exchange and stock value and stock market indices values. And contact us if you want to buy shares in Blue Robot. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to be a pink sheet stock, I think. Yeah, that's about, that's about how much effort I'm willing to put Our CFO is uh, Emily's two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, mm -hmm. and she's going to be excellent at, at being a CFO, I believe. But she's not available between the hours of 1 and 3.30 because she'll be asleep. Exactly. You know. 
Uh, you can visit our website at whereedispodcast.com. And you should. And uh, if you were willing to give us a review on iTunes, we have at least six reviews on iTunes. What? People like us? I know. <laughs> Thank you for the people that have left reviews. We're I very love grateful. You. Oh, hey. Though nothing ever happens in Canada. She mentioned us uh, a couple weeks ago in her podcast. I love that podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's so engaging. We love you too. She takes you on like adventures in the past. And mm-hmm. it's a really nice sort of narrative uh, with a lot of historical information in it too. Thanks for listening. Yeah. All right. The end. <laughs> <laughs>